Getting sober requires a lot more than mind over matter, a lot more than willpower. It's about leveraging the support around you. People in recovery typically need a mix of medical help, emotional support, and changes in lifestyle to manage their addiction, not just mental determination. As both a therapist and someone embracing the recovery lifestyle, there's one tool I always recommend to people needing extra accountability, Soberlink. Soberlink is a high-tech breath analyzer system designed to help you get and stay sober. And here's why I love it. You'll test the same day every day, eliminating testing anxiety. Friends and family receive instant test results, helping you rebuild trust and preventing relapse. Accountability is a part of that, and it's something to really be embraced. Devices have built-in facial recognition, so your support circle knows you're testing, and tamper-resistant sensors flag any attempts at trying to beat the system, so your sobriety is never questioned. So let 2024 be your best year yet. Visit Soberlink.com forward slash T-A-M to sign up and receive $50 off your device. That's Soberlink.com forward slash T-A-M. And let accountability be your guide. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Window. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Addicted Mind podcast, we are on to episode 71. My name is Dwayne Osterland and I'm your host. I'm also the founder of Novus Mindful Life Institute, Family Counseling and Recovery in Long Beach, California. If you or anyone you know is struggling with any of life's challenges, please reach out to us. I know we can help. You can find more information about us at theaddictedmind.com forward slash help. If you like The Addicted Mind podcast, please share it with someone you know, or leave a review in iTunes. Every little bit helps. For more of the Addicted Mind podcast, you can join our Facebook group. Just go to Facebook and type in the Addicted Mind podcast. We'll show up and click join. So our guest today is Dr. Ellie Katz, and she is going to share her holistic approach to treating people who are struggling with addictions, all types of addictions. And uh, she really shares her compassionate, no-nonsense approach. In this interview, I really enjoyed talking with her. I could tell she had an immense passion for helping people and had a really deep belief that everybody has the ability to change and in a way has the resources in them if they're willing to take the steps necessary to do it. And she really, I think any of your clients that get to work with her are very lucky and blessed to have that opportunity. I can tell that she takes a no-nonsense approach to working with individuals but at the same time is very compassionate and really believes deeply in their spirit and their goodness and that it's there and that that's what we can manifest. So it was definitely a fun interview to do and to talk with her and just to meet her. 
That's one of the things I love about doing the Addicted Mind podcast is getting to meet and talk to all these very interesting, fascinating, compassionate, and passionate people. So Dr. Ellie Katz definitely falls in that category. And I really just enjoyed the interview and I hope you enjoy the interview as well. So let's go ahead and uh, start it. All right, everybody, welcome to the Addicted Mind podcast. My guest today is Ellie Katz. And um, Ellie, you want to introduce a little bit about yourself and and we'll talk a little bit more about some of your books that you've written and uh, what you do. Okay, I'm a psychologist. I've been living in Israel for the last 42 years. I taught at the university and I got into the field of addiction in a formal way uh, 35 years ago. 35 years ago. So you've seen this field for quite a while then. You've seen it grow and change and sure, I would imagine. Okay. Well, tell me a little bit about you and what kind of got you into this kind of work. And Of course. Initially, my profession was psycholinguistics. That's what I got a doctorate in many, many years ago in America. And um, it wasn't until I was pregnant with my fourth child that I had a kind of awakening that my true nature and purpose in this world was to help people, not theoretical, interesting things about how the mind adapts to language and how people communicate, but really help people. And it was in my heart to do that, but I needed to go back and get re-educated. Okay. So tell me a little bit, like you said, linguistic work. Tell me a little bit about that and then how you took that into, I guess, directly helping people. Well, actually, I wrote my doctorate on the development of hands when you talk, nonverbal communication. I've always been fascinated by how people communicate with each other and exchange ideas and emotions. And I taught in the university uh, everything I knew about psychology. But when I had this awakening, I realized that I did not have a true, honest place in that version of psychology, that I didn't have my heart in it. My heart really belonged to the idea of helping all the poor and sick people. Right. So you kind of really felt led to to take this on. So how did that change for you then? It was marvelous. I mean, I took to it like a duck to water. It just made sense. It was so comfortable. I have a deep intuition about what people are up to. Always had a sense of, how can I say, when I was a kid, people called me the Earth Mother. The Earth Mother. That was, I even had in the phone book in New York in 1967, I was Ellie E.M. Hemkind. That was my maiden name. Wow. And people called me the Earth Mother. So you had a real connection to people. Oh, yeah, for sure. Always. I mean, people touch me. And people's insanity astounds and dazzles me. That's why I wrote my book, When Sane People Do Insane Things. I'm always tickled 
and touched and sad and annoyed by the idiotic things people say and do. Right, that we, uh, oh. we all do. Yeah, we all. Believe me, I'm president of the club. The you know, <laughs> regrettable, ridiculous, asinine, oh, God in heaven, did I just say that? <laughs> and, and then all the way to war and all the way to destruction and all the way to revenge. Right, right. So you, you in, in talking a little bit about this, you talked about kind of being a holistic psychotherapist or a holistic therapist working with people who maybe some of us doing some of these kind of crazy things that we probably aren't the best for us. How, how do you do that? Look, Dwayne, primarily, I work now only with addicts, addicts, their families, groups of addicts, individuals, everything within the framework of the rehab that I work at for the last 17 years. And everything is around the irresistible urges that have ruled your being if you're an addict. Right. And all the, uh, the shame and frustration and everything about everything about everything in the world of addiction. That's familiar to me. So how do you, um, it sounds like you really, I guess, bring yourself to this process, connecting to people who are struggling with addiction. What do you, for you, what do you see in yourself that you, you bring there to them? Well, I have this model that I created called the six essentials. And I, I call them the, uh, the building blocks of, of personal success. I'm always reminding my patients of these six essentials. The first one is good mood. Okay. And you need to ensure your good mood. You need to harness it. You need to build up an arsenal of things that protect it. So you stay up for the task, enthusiastic, interested, happy. Right. Optimistic. It's essential because the moment that you don't have this, you become frustrated, blase, even all the way to serious depression. Right. And, uh, and that would be terrible. That would be a terrible place to be. And, um, the book I wrote my last summer as a fat girl is my personal exploration into what food means to me and how I used it or abused it. I've never been morbidly obese or anorexic, but definitely food played a huge role in my life. So can you talk uh, more about that and, and, and your decision to write a book about that? Ever since I was five years old and woke up in a hospital virtually blind with bandages on my eyes, this was in the early 50s, my mother said from then on I was an unstoppable eater. And uh, my mom kept getting in between me and my plate, and it was pretty horrible. So just to get back at her, I would continue to eat. Every what happened to your eyes? Why? What? What led to that? 
I had what was called a double strabismus operation. I was cross-eyed mm-hmm. and um, my pretty blue eyes, now they're green, mm-hmm. were crossed. I had no awareness of that. And I had no foreknowledge of this operation. And I woke up so traumatized. Oh, my goodness. And my mom said after that, I was an eater and a storyteller. Storyteller was liar. Liar. Okay. So you had this. Make up story. Right. You had this traumatic experience and food kind of came to you as a way, I would imagine, as you see it now, as a way to self-soothe and and comfort yourself. And you were only five years old. Five years old. And when I first started school, they gave me a nickel every day and I bought a devil dog. Wow. It was my first awareness of purchasing power and that's what I did with it. Wow. Devil dog. Devil. You may be too young to know no, that. I've, I've heard, yeah. No, I've heard of devil dogs. I, I know what they are. I love food too. <laughs> okay, hearty appetite. <laughs> food has always been a very good friend of mine. Um, and it's a tricky addiction, let me tell you. I mean, I work with all kinds of addiction from heroin and alcohol, gambling, sex. But food, food is a real rascal. So how many years later, when you wrote your, that book, My Last Summer as, as a Fat Girl, when did you do that? How old were you? And, and, and when did you kind of say, look, this is, this is, I got to write this down? No, this was a couple of years ago. I was already a big girl. I was a well-seasoned psychologist. Right, okay. Yeah, I did an experiment. You know, that's, this is my last summer as a fat girl. Right. It actually worked. And I explore all the psychological ramifications of eating and what other things could be underlying. Yeah, yeah. So do you feel like, because um, it definitely... You know, I, I can tell that you you have an immense ability to be compassionate and connected to people on an emotional level. Do you think this trauma helped you actually do this work? A number of traumatic experiences all played a big role in who I am today. And one of the very important things in my life is that I'm a meditator. Mm-hmm. I've been doing that every day of my life for 47 years, Dwayne. Wow. That's huge. I'm also a member of OA, 12 Step with Food for the last, I think it's going on 26 years. Oh, wow. Yeah. So a lot of step work and a lot of um, 12 step work and interpersonal exploration and and, um, bringing that to your work. Yes, indeed. I have the same sponsor for the last, it'll be 25 years. Wow, that's amazing. That's very, very cool. I mean, it's a, it's a very, very interesting addiction, food. Very interesting because it's essential from the first minute of life till you die. You have to eat. You have to have a relationship with the plate. And many, 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 many people in our Western culture feel that they are too fat. I hardly hear people thinking they're too thin. Right. Too fat. Can't stand the way they look. And and then what are they willing to do about it is interesting. Right. I have many, right. many, many bulimic patients, 
even male bulimic patients. I have people obsessed with food to the extent where, you know, if you eat a carrot, then you better do some exercise. It's, it's, it's extraordinary and sad. Yeah. Yeah. Very. Do you find like when you're working with people who struggle with addiction, that this food becomes almost a secondary part of that, that recovery process? Sure. And, and again, the sex too. Seems to me that food and sex and money play a very big role in the addicted mind, irrespective of the addiction. Yeah, I would say the same thing. That's been my experience as I've, as I've worked in this field and have more experience is, is seeing that process. Once again, kind of going back to what you were saying earlier, we still continue to do some of those insane things, even though we know like, hey, maybe this isn't the best decision for me, but here I go. Right. We have a here I go kind of attitude. Mm -hmm. And then a few hours later or whatever, the next morning, "Ah, did I do that? I am so ashamed. I swore I wouldn't do that. Oh, God, here I go again. Right. And you're embarrassing yourself for being such a jerk. Right. But then you do it again, so... Yeah. So talking about your six steps, you said the one about having a positive mood. Yeah. Let's uh, talk about a few more of them. Well, one of them is love and kindness. And actually, I did five groups yesterday at the rehab and everything was around love and kindness. You turn to the person on your left and lovingly and with all the kindness, use your head and your heart and tell them something that you've observed, something about them, something about their process, something about their development at the rehab, how it was and how it seems to be now, something about their growth. Be kind, because most of the time people are acting really cranky and bitchy, and they give themselves a lot of leeway. Right. And it's mostly negative just to be spewing poison about yourself, about the roommate, about there's a, a profound amount of dissatisfaction, a brew. Right. Yeah, definitely. When, you know, you're in addiction, there's a lot of uh, unmanageability in your life. So creating a, a sense of positivity, loving sure. kindness, and don't, passion. don't forget, at the rehab, they live there in a therapeutic community for seven or nine or a whole year. Right. They need to know how to be kind and loving and supportive. They need to know that that is the point. Right. That's what we're, what we're about. It's a community. It's a humanity that you have to be kind and loving to. Right. And if you start to create, I mean, you have the, I'm, my belief is you have the ability to create that by choosing to do those kind of things. Like I'm going to be kind to the person next to me, it creates kindness in yourself or compassion for yourself, I think. You bet. And then think about what happens when you're not kind and when you're not loving, you're full of hate and you're part of a community that inspires hate. I mean, ultimately, if we're talking about the history of the world, there's politics, there's war. Right. 
tremendous amount of money in the war machine that could be going to save people's lives, provide food and infrastructure, and that's not happening. I know. It's not happening. It's very sad. It is sad. Very sad. It is sad. One of the questions I wanted to ask you, too, because of your wealth of experience and time, how do you feel like addiction treatment has changed over time or has it changed or what what has been in your experience? Because you've been working in the addiction field for 35 years. So that's something I'm curious about. Well, that would be hard for me to say because here I am so many years later, 12-stepping. In my decades of experience, I've introduced a holistic approach to the treatment. So I'm giving people Bach flower remedies, uh, herbal remedies. We do a lot of guided thinking, work with music, work with art, drama. We have at our rehab horse therapy, animal therapy. It's absolutely gorgeous. Wow. That sounds amazing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, there are people who get recovery from working with animals, cleaning them up, feeding them, relating to them. Right. They, in fact, feel more comfortable with animals than they do with people. They feel safer. They feel safer. And we, we introduce all kinds of uh, marvelous, marvelous interventions and activities to keep people enthusiastic and keep them from boredom and routine. So I don't know. I mean, I think rehabs all over the world are doing 12-step, are giving people chores and tasks, are providing family therapy once the work has progressed. And uh, I don't know. I'm not able to say how addiction rehabilitation has changed over the years. Okay. I know how, I know how I've changed it for my work I do, of course. Right. Well, let's let's keep going and talking a little bit more then about, you're talking about some of the steps that you do to work with clients. What are some of the other things that you give them? Discipline. Discipline. Very, very important. One of the things that happens to people, not necessarily addicts, but you're enthusiastic. You're all worked up. Oh, yeah. I'm going to start this new project. Oh, I'm going to learn this. I'm going to do this. Oh, I'm going to really go and do it. Ah, forget it. You lose your enthusiasm or it gets hard or it's routine or it's too familiar. It's boring. It's not new. It's old. I think a lot of health clubs count on this that people pay, sign up, and they're not going to come after, you know, they can practically predict who's going to keep coming and who's going to. Yeah, I think some of their business models are built around that, that they know right. people are going to pay and they're not going to show up and use the, use the gym. Yeah. So, yeah. Of course not. Yeah. And because it's human nature to be enthusiastic about something novel, fresh, Right. Oh, oh, and you get all worked up and it's a, it's a joke. And there are people who tend to 
fall into laziness time and time again. They're just not in it for the duration. So discipline, without a doubt, is one of the six essentials. So is flexibility, or you're never going to change. Oh, there you go. Yeah. Yeah. So consistency, discipline, and then flexibility. Sure. Forgiveness. A big, 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 big problem is people who can't forgive themselves. Yeah. I mean, I'm working with the guilt that is just unstoppable. Yeah. And you can't forgive yourself and you put yourself in a jail. Here, I, I was working with someone recently who looked me straight in the eye. She said, I was a stubborn girl at 17 and I didn't listen to my parents and I got married at 17 and I had so many fights with my mother that I gave her cancer and five years later she died. And ever since then, I'm a broken person and I'm an addict. I'm actually a mother myself, but uh, I'm a child. I'm a baby. I cry easily and I know that I made my mother die. Oh my goodness. Oh boy. Oh my goodness. Oh my goodness. And I'm going to have to do private work with her to free her from this outrageous mindset that she would be even powerful enough to create cancer in her mother. Right. But those can be such uh, pernicious beliefs. You know, it can be hard sometimes to forgive ourselves for the destruction that we've caused. I know it's hard. So what? It's part of the thing. So what? Who gives a damn? <laughs> yeah. Well, that's back to you that idea it. of discipline. Okay, it's hard. It's hard. I'm bored. I don't feel like it. I want to go do something else. Oh, God, I have to go again at 6 o'clock in the morning and run on the treadmill. Oh, sweet Lord, leave me alone. No. You want to get somewhere? Initially, you signed up to change. So what the hell is this? Phooey. Right, right. get going. <laughs> Look, I call my people on their BS. That's something I do. I, I'm not mean. God forbid, no. I'm loving and funny, but I call you on the nonsense. I want you to, I want you to know what you're up to. So I often say to my patients, did you just hear what you said? Are you kidding? Mm -hmm. Say it again. Say it again with meaning. Because at first it's kind of, oh, I said that. No, no. I want to hear it like you said it and you mean it. And I'm telling you, you actually believe this crap. So we got to change it. Right. We got to change it because you're stuck. You're stuck in a big, fat, stupid place. And I think, you know, the, you know, the people that can give us that really honest feedback about what's going on with us, at first, it's always not the most comfortable thing, but it becomes the most valuable thing. It becomes like the, it, it becomes the gift. And those are the kind of people you want to put in your life. Look, I had a girl come to the group yesterday. She didn't come for a month. Why she didn't come? Because all 300 pounds of her decided that I said she was fat. I never said she was fat. She must have looked in the mirror. So she didn't come for a month. And 
I apologized to her. I said, if you've somehow gotten the impression that I think you're fat, I mean, I had to keep a straight face, Dwayne. I had to keep a straight face. I'm looking at 300 pounds of being. Right. And I'm trying to convince her that I don't think she's fat. That she thinks she's fat. I'm not to blame here. Right. Golly. That's that, uh, that honesty. Look, they do sometimes get cranky. And it's been my good fortune to have people say, I don't want to go to Dr. Ellie's group. I don't want to go there anymore. And sometimes we let them have their way. Other times people are forced and they have to come. And I can hear things like, you think you understand every person in the room? You think you get it? Because you've been doing this for so long, Dr. Ellie. Well, I got something to tell you, Buster. Okay, I let them do that. I let them do that. Right. But the truth, in my heart of hearts, I think the good Lord has provided me with opportunity to help all of these jokers. Right. I don't think anybody that's going to come to me is inscrutable. And I won't be able to figure out the beautiful pathway to their sanity. Right. Got to take a leap of faith. Yeah. They got to trust I know what I'm doing and I care about them. Yeah. Even the most hateful, I care. I, I know. You know what I know, Dwayne? I know that it's just luck that separates me from them. That's well said. That's well. Yeah. It's yeah. true. Yeah. I'm lucky. I'm lucky I'm not where they are in that kind of mess, with that kind of history, with that kind of list of shameful, shameful activities. It's like, um, you know, I think as we go through this journey and we are at that place in the beginning where we're filled with a lot of shame and guilt, it's hard to really believe that anyone could care about us at times. It's hard to believe it. And even if they're telling us the truth, that might be really, really difficult to hear that they care and that they genuinely have compassion for us and and in some ways want the best. That I know is my truth. I really do want the best for really some of the most despicable people, devils, hardened criminals, liars are really wounded individuals, sad little children inside. And if they just give me a little bit of opening, I'll get in there and help. I'm not judging them, not judging them. Could be me acting like a jackass. Yeah. All right. As we kind of were getting close to our time here, you've shared a lot. I've, I've really enjoyed this conversation. Thank you. Me too. You're a darling human being. Oh, thank you. <laughs> what If anybody's listening to this podcast, hopefully people are listening to this podcast. Oh, <laughs> God. I'm banking on it. You're banking on it. Um, that What would you want to want to tell them? What would you want to say? Anybody out there who's struggling to, to get started or to take the next step? As long as you draw breath, change is possible. Please know it. 
That's all I care about, helping people change. Oh, thank you so much. And people can find more information about you at your website, which is elliecats.com. I'll list that on uh, the show notes as well so people can find it. And they can also, I'll list all your books too, because you have several books. Thank you. Yeah, you bet. So I'll list those as well. And more and more to and come. Oh, get ready. More to come. Sharing, sharing your wisdom. I love it. Thank you. So, you know what, Ellie, thank you so much for for coming on and just talking a little bit about this journey and and where we go and and helping people who struggle with addiction. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you for the opportunity to reach a big audience. I hope you have a big audience. Me too. (laughs) You take care. Maybe I'll help you be famous. (laughs) Maybe. I don't know. (laughs) Take care, dear. Take care. Thank you. All right. Thank you for listening to the Addicted Mind podcast. All the show notes will be at theaddictedmind.com forward slash 71. I'll link to her website and to her books as well. If you like this episode, please share it with a friend. And if you'd like more of the Addicted Mind podcast, join our Facebook group. Just go to Facebook and type in the Addicted Mind podcast. We'll show up and click join. All right, everyone, have a wonderful day and I will talk to you on the next episode. It's easy to blame ourselves for our struggles with alcohol. We see people around us being able to control their drinking without any consequences, yet no matter what we try, we can't seem to figure it out for ourselves. My name is Jillian Teets, and I am the host of the Sober Powered Podcast, where I use my biochemistry background to explain the latest research in addiction and help you understand both why you drink the way you do and how to develop the skills and mindset you need to find freedom from alcohol. I discuss topics like why we think about our drinking 24-7, why we have no off switch, and why we crave alcohol. If you're struggling with your drinking or you know someone who is, then I hope that you will check out the Sober Powered Podcast. New episodes every Friday. See you there.